It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, now that we've got the COVID relief bill out of the way, it's time to turn our collective attention to a big crisis, another crisis, an overwhelming crisis facing America, and that is what to do about daylight savings time. You know, there's something going on here in Washington where conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats are coming together in a bipartisan fashion to say we must make daylight savings time permanent. Uh, this is really starting to get more attention. I just, obviously, this issue has been kicking around a very long time. And I love this legislation. I love the name of it. It's such a classic Beltway thing. The Sunshine Protection Act. As if any change in how we set our clocks is going to affect the sun. The sun doesn't care. Uh, but, you know, the argument is why we, does America have to go through this twice a year, including this Saturday night, you know, it's fall back, spring ahead. Everybody has get the, got to get used to uh, the uh, extra hour, more or less. Um, and the people pushing this, I mean, talk about claiming uh, incredible benefits. It will reduce crime, depression, childhood obesity, energy consumption, and car accidents. Uh, childhood obesity? Okay, I don't quite get it. I mean, one of the arguments against it is that in the winter... Um, if the sun comes up really late, then you got a lot of school kids who are out there waiting for the bus when it's really dark out, and that could be dangerous. This is something that uh, comes back, goes back to World War One. That's when daily light savings time in America started to save fuel during World War One. More daylight hours. Now, look, if it was up to me, I would make it permanent because I like daylight savings time. I hate when it, you know the sun goes down at a quarter to five in December and January. Uh, but I understand a lot of competing interests here. I mean, will this be, could this be something uh, bipartisan that President Biden could sign into law? Do we know what Biden's position is on daylight savings time? Why didn't he talk about this during the campaign? All right, you get the point. A um, lot of stuff to cover here on the podcast. Happy Friday. Uh, we're getting ready to make some final changes to Media Buzz. Hope you'll watch Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox um, before I dive in, there's a bit of history here. For those of you who are, shall we say, older Americans, you might appreciate this more, having to do with Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, I actually talked about LBJ yesterday, coincidentally, uh, because um, there were all these pieces that were suddenly touting Joe Biden as the new LBJ because the coronavirus relief bill is now being embraced. You didn't hear this before, but it's being repackaged, reinvented, reimagined as a huge, massive anti-poverty program. I may get into that a little bit later. But back, you know, in the fall of 1965, I mean, Lyndon Johnson was riding high. You know, he had obviously had succeeded uh, the fall in JFK. And in the next two years, he was able to push through Medicare, Medicaid, other great society programs, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, you know, he had a Democratic Congress and he had been uh, overwhelmingly reelected in 64. And you would think he would, a guy who, would, you know, who had been so marginalized as Kennedy's vice president and who, you know, had this great thirst for power, always wanted to be president, would be riding high. But now there's an author coming out with a biography of Lady Bird Johnson who had access to her diaries or some of her diary entries for the first time. And in late 65, uh, after Johnson uh, was um, recovering, he was in the hospital recovering from gallbladder surgery. I think we all, those of us who were around at the time, remember him showing the scar, which considered a very gauche thing to do. Anyway, he fell into a depression, according to his wife, 
and he started talking about abdicating the presidency. Um, Abe Fortas, who was a Supreme Court justice, but yet a confidant of LBJ, visited and he kind of, uh, Johnson started dictating a statement saying, I want to go to the ranch. I don't even want Hubert to be able to call me. Hubert Humphrey, his vice president, who later ran to succeed him in 68. Um, they may demand that I resign. They may even want to impeach me. Eventually, it was Lady Bird Johnson who coaxed him out of this period of despair, and he served out the last three years of his term. Um, and then, even in January of 68, he was going to give the State of the Union speech, and he had a secret draft in which he would say then that he wasn't going to run for re-election. He didn't do it. From Lady Bird's uh, diary, uh, he was like a man on whom an avalanche had suddenly fallen. This is back in 1965. So here is the black beast of depression back in our lives. Um, but nevertheless, he, he didn't uh, say he wasn't going to run again in you know, the early part of 68 until uh, he wasn't beaten, but Eugene McCarthy running on an anti-Vietnam War platform you know, scored like an incredible you know, 42%, and then Johnson decided he would hang it up. All right, let's fast forward to 2021 and the bill I was just talking about. Story number one. Um, so the New York Times, which yesterday, if you listen to the podcast, faithful Buzzmeter fans, uh, you remember I said there was a very favorable piece about how this was the greatest expansion of government um, power in a generation, in a couple of generations, really, a, a giant anti-poverty program on par with what LBJ did, at least when he wasn't feeling depressed, and how, uh, you know, it was mostly just how great it was, you know, with very little attention given to the other side of the argument. So today, the Times gives a little bit more, now that the bill has passed and Biden signed it into law, uh, and I'll get into his speech in a moment. Um, now the Times says, well, you know what? Republicans are denouncing the bill as the most progressive domestic legislation in a generation, a massive expansion of the entitlement system, uh, and the Democrats are happy with that. The question for Republicans is whether they can get away with excoriating a bill that will deliver tangible benefits in the form of cash, tax credits, helping paying childcare and healthcare expenses, and much more to millions of Americans after a year of devastation and uncertainty. In other words, you know, the Republicans are doing what they typically do, which is big government, big spending, uh, wasteful spending, and that's fine. And, you know, they certainly can talk about the explosion of the debt and the deficit, although they didn't seem to care about that during Donald Trump's four years as president, and that's typical. You know, the out-of-power party always like, oh my God, we can't have this program because it will explode the deficit. But the Democrats are, you know, feel like, okay, this bill got zero Republican votes in the House or the Senate, but the polls show very popular, 70% support, including about a third of Republicans. Then you have people like uh, Republican Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, um, after the bill passed, he went on Twitter and said that he applauded the inclusion of $28 billion for struggling restaurants. The problem is, Wicker, like every other Republican, voted against the bill. He says, well, you know, I don't have to like everything in it. I'm glad we're getting the money for restaurants. Okay, privately, says the Times, some Republicans said they believed their pushback against the bill had been weak and too heavily focused on process allowing Democrats to gain the upper hand with the celebration of the extensive help they're providing. You know, look, these checks are going to start going out as early this weekend. You get a $14 stimulus check. Uh, you get an unemployment uh, check if you are uh, been out of work for a long time. 
your business gets aid. A lot of people are going to like this. So now here's Mitch McConnell preemptively trying to say this bill is going to do nothing. He says, we're on our way out of this, meaning the pandemic. We're about to have a boom. And if we do have a boom, it will have absolutely nothing to do with this $1.9 trillion. Now, Mitch knows that that's not true. You can't pump $2 trillion into the economy and say it has no effect. You can say the recovery was already started and we didn't need it and this goes too far. You can say all those things, but you can't say it's irrelevant. Um, Other Republicans are convinced once they finish airing out elements of the bill, they intend to paint in the worst possible light, uh, such as, you know, benefits for people in prison, benefits for undocumented immigrants. The public will turn against the package. They were pretty successful, I think, in knocking down the Obama stimulus package in 2009 in, in reducing its popularity. But, you know, that was a crisis caused by greedy Wall Street bankers, and it wasn't that popular to begin with. This, you know, is a virus. Uh, that has devastated the globe and has touched every American. I don't care who you are, whether you, even you still have a job, maybe your could, kids couldn't go to school, you're worried about getting a vaccine, you're worried about your health. Lindsey Graham says, well, the bill will uh, produce a sugar high when the $1,400, $1,400 payments go out. But, you know, sugar highs can be good in politics. So that's the argument there. Let me talk a little bit about... Uh, Joe Biden's speech. Because in the first few minutes, I thought, man, this is a really grim speech. And throughout the entire speech, he was sober. He never smiled once. And he was obviously setting up his explanation of what he was going to do. And he eventually got around to the bill. But he came out and says, it's been a terrible year. And we've lost so many loved ones. And he took this card out of his pocket that he carries with him. And it said, I think the victory was something like 529,000 Americans. It is staggering. Lost to COVID-19. And he talked about, you know, people uh, not being able to say goodbye to their loved ones, difficulty having funerals. I mean, it was really grim and dark on a day that, you know, this was supposed to be, a, you know, a celebration of the bill. But that's not the way Joe Biden rolls. And so somebody noticed there was a contrast between Donald Trump saying at the 2016 convention, I alone can fix it. And Joe Biden not really making this about himself. Uh, in fact, the single most striking moment of the speech to me, beyond doubt, was when he said, I need you. I need you. I need every American to do their part, meaning let's not uh, now forget about masks and distancing and let's everybody go out and get the vaccine when it becomes available and when it's your turn. So I do think, you know, if there's one thing that Biden it's part of his brand. He specializes in it. I say it's part of his brand. It made it sounds like it's calculated, and it's not. I've interviewed Joe Biden a number of times. I've covered Joe Biden since the 80s. He, he is a backslapping person, politician with a lot of empathy. Whether you like his politics or not, I'm leaving that aside. So I thought for him, not a great orator. This was a very well-delivered speech. And eventually he got around to... You know, by May 1st, we are going to tell the states, I don't think they can order the states to do this, but it'll be the CDC guidance or whatever, that um, every American over 18, all those between 18 and 64, you don't have to have a pre-existing condition, should be able to at least register for the vaccine or vaccines, depending on which one you get. And so that's kind of light at the end of the tunnel. People can at least sign up. And then, of course, everyone's not going to get it at once, but he has said that by the end of May, everyone, there'll be enough doses. It'll probably take longer than that, but there'll be enough doses. And he just talked so much about, he said, you know, I guess I guess the administration has been accused of excessive pessimism. So the, the president talked about by July 4th, you know, you still won't be able to go into crowded places, but, you know, 
families will be able to have small backyard gatherings and cookouts for, to celebrate Independence Day. Independence from the virus is really what he was saying. And, um, you know, you'll be able to, grandparents will be able to hug their kids if they are vaccinated. And that did feel good to hear that. Um, and so, you know, he, it became, you know, a moment of unity. Uh, better times are coming. But again, he's not going to overpromise. You got to do your part. You got to stay distance. You got to wear a mask, but you got to get out and get those vaccines. Um, Dan Bowles, writing in the Washington Post, uh, says uh, um, the contrast in leadership style between Trump and Biden uh, is really a sea change. To a nation exhausted from a year in shutdown, Biden offered hope. He set a goal of having family and friends be able to gather together. Uh, he ordered states to make all adults eligible, as I said, by May 1st. Um, but with hope came words of caution. He warned against backsliding in behavior that could allow new variants of the virus to spread and set back the timetable for return to normal. That means continuing to wear masks, social distancing, and getting vaccinated as soon as possible. Now, another thing that really struck me yesterday is that originally Biden was going to sign the bill today. He's going to give the primetime speech last night, the first primetime address of his presidency, signed the bill today. But for whatever reason, maybe the thinking was that this is so urgent, why wait a day? Uh, a snap decision was made, and he signed the bill yesterday in the afternoon. So the new president of the United States, it manages to push through Congress, obviously on a party line vote, as everyone knows, nearly $2 trillion to help schools, to help um, healthcare workers, to make it easier to sign up for Obamacare, uh, to help the unemployed, to help ordinary Americans under a certain income level. I mean, there's a lot to celebrate there. And he doesn't stage the big signing ceremony. I guess they're having a ceremony today. He doesn't have members of Congress there. He doesn't hand out the pens as his traditional. He just comes in the Oval Office. He sits down. He says a few sentences. He signs the bill and he gets up and leaves. I, you know, uh, I, it was workmanlike. I know he didn't want to detract from the major speech he was going to give later that day. But still, I mean, he kind of like kicked it away. I mean, this was a moment. It became law as soon as he signed that piece of paper. That's how it works. I just thought you'd want a little pomp and more pomp and ceremony. In fact, I saw uh, David Axelrod, uh, the former Obama guy who obviously worked with Biden as vice president, saying, you know, if anything... Biden's speech was a little too grim, and he should have taken more credit. He says everything doesn't have to be an overreaction to Donald Trump. But he really didn't. He said, you know, we're in this together, and I'm so happy. I thank Congress for passing this bill. Uh, Biden has this thing where he doesn't make it about himself. I think, in some ways, that's politically admirable. On the other hand, politicians do have to market themselves. And, of course, he and Kamala Harris are going to go out and do a big tour and all of that. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let me move on now to number two, because things are getting grim for Andrew Cuomo. I mean, this thing, when you consider it's just a few short weeks ago that you had the first accuser write that piece of medium, that was Lindsey Boylan, and then you had Charlotte Bennett go public with the New York Times, and then the interview with CBS's Nora O'Donnell. Now we're up to six accusers. But wow, Cuomo is losing Democratic support by the hour. I mean, literally before I sat down at the buzz meter mic here, uh, I saw that Jerry Nadler, uh, who, of course, spearheaded the impeachment proceedings against uh, Trump, both of them, as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, now calling, he's from New York, now calling for Andrew Cuomo to resign. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, now calling for Andrew Cuomo to resign. Uh, yesterday, uh, Democrats who control the legislature, both houses, uh, 
uh, at least they authorized the assembly to begin an impeachment investigation, which clearly is intended to ratchet up the pressure for Andrew Cuomo to resign. Uh, now, when you have the big names in your party saying you can no longer effectively govern, um, it becomes very difficult. Now, nobody can force Cuomo to resign. Uh, he is entitled to say he should get due process, that you know the investigation being headed by the state attorney general should at least run its course. Uh, but the Times has a story that's now already dated. It's in the paper this morning about the uh, impeachment investigation. Uh, and the assembly speaker called... He's the Democrat saying it will encompass uh, interviewing witnesses, subpoenaing documents and evaluating evidence uh, came on the same day that 59 uh, Democratic legislators. And that's about 40 percent of the Democrats in the Assembly and the Senate in Albany signed a statement saying Cuomo should immediately resign. Um, so the rapid fire developments, according to The New York Times, underscore how Cuomo's once ironclad grip on Albany was fast weakening and left veteran lawmakers wondering how he could continue to effectively govern. And then here's the story. I mean, here's the, the whole situation in, in one sentence. His manner of governing, sometimes through heavy-handed tactics of intimidation and retaliation, has alienated potential allies at a moment of need, leaving him increasingly isolated as he navigates the most precarious moment of his tenure. He's been governor for 10 years, he clearly is not going to be able to run for another term, but he's got another year and a half left in this, his third term. And, of course, Bill de Blasio, I mean, he and Cuomo just absolutely despise each other, even though they're both governors. He's the outgoing mayor, of course, of New York City, saying he can no longer serve as governor. It's as simple as that. What I'm sensing here is, uh, you know, I'm not taking away from the sincerity of Democrats who have just had enough. There have been too many accusers. You also have the nursing home investigation. You have the cover-up of the nursing home deaths, and that in a way, is equally, if not more significant than the women who are accusing uh, Governor Cuomo. But what I'm sensing here now is the bandwagon effect. Because if you do the calculation, if you're a Democrat and you do the calculation that, you know what, he can't survive this. He's going to have to resign. Maybe it's this week, maybe it's next week, maybe it's next month. He's going to have to resign. Then you don't want to be the guy or woman, uh, because Kirsten Gillibrand, for example, is still not called for him to resign, who didn't say anything and then suddenly Cuomo quits. You want to be able to say in the future, well, look, I stood up to a governor of my own party and I said he should resign. If you think, in fact, he's going to resign, if you think he's going to hang on, he's going to become powerful again, then maybe not so much. So that's what I think is going on here. When you have AOC, when you have Nadler, when you have de Blasio, when you have 40% of the party's uh, lawmakers in Albany saying that Governor Cuomo, who just a year ago was riding so high, lionized by the media, hero of the pandemic, it just shows you how quickly things can change in politics, and in this case, you know, a lot of self-inflicted wounds here. And the other Democratic governor who was riding high uh, at the beginning of the pandemic one year ago is Gavin Newsom. And now the people who are trying to recall him for his handling of the pandemic have, have passed two million signatures of the recall petitions. Um, you need roughly a million and a half, maybe more than that, but you don't need two million, but you need more. There's always a lot that are thrown out. So Newsom could be recalled. Cuomo could be forced from office. Um, and now there's no longer a Donald Trump in office to deflect attention. Number three, uh, National Review has a piece about uh, Biden uh, at the 50-day mark. Political media are grading him generously. I think that's true. Um, but it's an interesting take that I want to share with you. 
Uh, and that is, uh, Jim Garrity writes, Biden and his team will face a bit of catch-22 in the coming months. As spring arrives, as more Americans get vaccinated, the public expectation that daily life should be back to, quote, normal will grow considerably. And not all of Biden's usual allies are all that eager to get back to normal. Now, that caused me to stop, you know, spit out my coffee and say, wait a minute. Everybody wants to get back to normal. What is this about? Well, Garrity writes, there's no getting around the fact that Republican governors and leaders, by and large, have been more eager to open up society and the economy. And Democratic governors and leaders have been slower and more reluctant to lift some of the restrictions and the lockdowns. If there's a Democrat, excuse me, if there's a demographic of Americans who are content with the pandemic era status quo or anxious or nervous or panicked, these people are mostly Democrats. So what this goes on to say is, you know, the teachers unions and many of them are no rush to go back to school. So if we do go back to something resembling normal, which I happen to think would be great, and I'm never going to uh, say otherwise, if you're a conservative or Republican, um, the need for far-reaching action by government that was sort of justified during the pandemic as a necessary evil, well, now it's no longer needed. And if you view all this as a panic power grab that trampled upon Americans' constitutional rights, you want to get out of the pandemic so that excuse, that rationale, no longer exists. If you're a progressive uh, or a Democrat, the pandemic has been a fantastic demonstration of what a larger, more powerful, more assertive government can do to correct the bad judgment and bad decisions of citizens. Well, you can tell where uh, Garrity, who's a conservative, comes down, but he does make an interesting point. There's no question, you know, I'm never going to say, I, I joked about this the other day, well, it's good that we had the pandemic because it enabled us to do X. I talked about traffic being down in D.C., but there's no question you don't get a one, uh, $2 trillion bill through Congress without a pandemic that enabled the Democrats and President Biden to, uh, to try to alleviate child poverty, to try to bail out failing union pensions. That, that alone was $86 billion, which even by Beltway standards is real money, um, which strengthened Obamacare. Now, none of us, including Joe Biden, would would ever want to have gone through this just to have bigger government, more effective government. But when Bill Clinton said, as I noted yesterday, the era of big government is over, responding to the backlash that started most vociferously in the Reagan years, Joe Biden is not using this phraseology, but really is saying the era of big government is back. And his speech and his recent speeches have really been a defense of what government can do to help people in this hour of need. And there is a, an amazing need People are hurting out there. People are dying. It's still about 1,500 Americans a day dying from COVID-19. So this is not over. By the way, uh, I talked yesterday about the New York Times today. The Washington Post also giving some vaccine credit to former President Trump. Uh, Biden's senior advisor on the COVID team, Annie Slavitt, telling Fox News, we're grateful for the work that came before us. We're trying to continue it and accelerate it. I would absolutely tip my hat to the Trump administration which made sure we got, in record time, a vaccine up and out. So finally, some belated recognition uh, for the former president. Number four, Axios has a piece saying that for the first time in years, speaking of, Donald Trump is starting to fade into the background, according to data compiled by a company called Social Flow, the number of clicks on news articles. So during his first month out of office, Trump maintained uh, he was as disgusted as he was when he was still president. Well, of course, you had the aftermath of the January 6th riot. Of course, you had impeachment, which, of course, played out 
after he had left office. So, of course, uh, there were zillions of stories about Trump. His numbers now have plunged in the last couple of weeks. During the first four weeks after he left office, according to this one measurement, um, on a scale of 1 to 100, Trump averaged 53. In the last two weeks, his average has fallen to 21. Now, as Axios points out, and I will echo, um, part of this is by choice. Well, for one thing, Trump's no longer on Twitter. He's no longer on Facebook. So that tends to drive uh, clicks on stories. Um, his CPAC speech, which was back on February 28th, so that's a couple of weeks ago now, um, was really has been his only public appearance since leaving office, the only one where he came out and faced the cameras. Everything else has been statements. Sometimes his statements make news. I talked about the statement yesterday about remember me when you get the vaccine. But it's just a statement. And, you know, in the, in the, in the rush to cover what was happening yesterday between the Biden speech, Biden signing the law, House passing the law, um, there just wasn't much attention to that. But, you know, what I say to this is this is now. And Trump is going to come back as a newsworthy figure. He's going to start making more appearances as he starts doing endorsements in the midterm elections, as he starts campaigning against those who Republicans who voted for impeachment or for conviction. So, you know, Trump is a showman. He knows that the, this this is not his season. You know, he'll do it here and there. But and I'm not you know, he's never going to reach the level again of when he was an incumbent president, of course. Can't impeach him again, folks. It's over. You did it twice. Uh, but I do think that we'll be seeing, hearing, and the media will be welcoming a lot more Trump coverage because Trump is good for clicks and ratings, you know. Uh, and as long as there's a possibility, which he will obviously foster, that he could run in 2024. If he runs, he's the nominee, right? You know, what Republican is going to beat Donald Trump, even at the age of 78, for the nomination? 78. How could you be president at 78? Well, Joe Biden is, uh, is making a run at it, shall we say. So I don't think Trump is gone uh, forever. I don't even think he's gone for a very long time. And finally, number five, piece from The Guardian in London. I, maybe I'm more fascinated by this but than a lot of you. It's about the Harry Meghan fallout. But Piers Morgan, you know, who I, I was once on his CNN show. I've interviewed him. You know, he is a big TV personality. As you know, he quit the morning show Good Morning Britain after absolutely savaging um, Meghan Markle. But there's more to it, according to The Guardian. So after he walked off the set, but before he resigned, and there were you know, 41,000 complaints uh, to the British media regulator, um, Meghan's representatives complained to ITV, the network uh, that Piers was on. Now, says The Guardian, sources within the show's editorial and production staff have described how dozens of people inside Good Morning Britain were also uncomfortable about his intervention, with some making complaints. So this is like the New York Times newsroom revolting uh, against uh, then editorial page editor um, James Bennett for running that Tom Cotton op-ed, and he ends up getting fired. So some people at the show, at the Good Morning Britain show that Piers co-hosted, didn't like what he did to Meghan Markle. I mean, he'd been ragging on her for quite a while, but, you know, the morning after uh, she sits down with Oprah, or at least that airs, and talks about how she didn't want to live and she, um, and she felt it was racism at the palace. He trashes her and doesn't believe a word out of her mouth, he says. So ITV management's attitude changed after Morgan walked off the set and this uh, other presenter, Alex Beresford, you know, was challenging him. That's why he walked off. 
Uh, one uh, source says they felt they had to be seeing the network as being on the morally right side of the argument. Peers wouldn't back down and had to go. So this is the thing. ITV wanted him to apologize. They wanted him to walk it back. They wanted him to say, you know what, perhaps I went too far in my comments about Meghan Markle. And Piers Morgan would not do that. Uh, this, is also, this piece in The Guardian also says this is very much generational. Many of the younger people at the network felt that he's out of line here. Um, and so, in case you think this is just, you know, uh, journalistic inside baseball, uh, another British newspaper says that ITV shares, its stock price, plummeted by 4.3%, despite the fact that that show, uh, the one in which Piers went off, you know, was, did so great in the ratings, it actually beat the BBC Breakfast Show, which I guess is, is the top morning show in the UK. So, Piers wouldn't apologize, he's out, uh, it's just like Donald Trump, he'll be back, he'll be back bigger than ever, there's a lot of chatter about what he'll do next, you know, I, I still don't, I don't fully get, maybe he was sick of getting up early or something, but you know, why he would blow up his career over Meghan Markle, but nevertheless, that's what happened, and we will all see what happens. I will hope you have all a good weekend. I'll remind you again about Media Buzz Sunday morning. We're going to deal with Cuomo. We're going to deal with Biden and the bill, a whole lot of other stuff, a little bit of Royals as well. Also, we'll just take this brief opportunity to say, if you go to Apple iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon Music or on your Amazon device, you can have this thing delivered. I'd appreciate the subscriptions. We put a lot of work into this. We have a lot of fun doing it. We'll see you back here Monday with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.